continue reading from the New Testament, Romans chapter 6. For those of you who are joining us this morning for this special service, we've been considering the doctrine of justification, uh, both from Lord's Days 23 and 24 and also uh, Reformation Day last Sunday. So we're concluding the third sermon this morning on Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so also we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin. But ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men, because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members, servants to uncleanness, and to iniquity, unto iniquity, even so, now yield your members, servants to righteousness, unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end, everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. May God bless the reading of his holy and powerful life-giving word to our hearts. I ask you now to turn to uh, the form for the administration of baptism, page 126, in the back of the Psalter, page 126, in the back of the Psalter. The principal parts of the doctrine of holy baptism are these three. That we with our children are conceived and born in sin, and therefore are children of wrath, insomuch that we cannot enter into the kingdom of God except we are born again. This, the dipping in or sprinkling with water, teaches us whereby the impurity of our souls is signified, and we admonished to loathe and humble ourselves before God and seek for our purification and salvation without ourselves. Secondly, Holy baptism witnesses and seals unto us the washing away of our sins through Jesus Christ. Therefore we are baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, 
For when we are baptized in the name of the Father, God the Father witnesses and seals unto us that he doth make an eternal covenant of grace with us and adopts us for his children and heirs, and therefore will provide us with every good thing and avert all evil or turn it to our profit. And when we are baptized in the name of the Son, the Son seals unto us that he does wash us in his blood from all our sins, incorporating us into the fellowship of his death and resurrection, so that we are freed from all our sins and accounted righteous before God. In like manner, when we are baptized in the name of the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost assures us by this holy sacrament that he will dwell in us and sanctify us to be members of Christ, applying unto us that which we have in Christ, namely the washing away of our sins and the daily renewing of our lives till we shall finally be presented without spot or wrinkle among the assembly of the elect in life eternal. Thirdly, whereas in all covenants there are contained two parts, therefore are we by God through baptism admonished of and obliged unto new obedience, namely that we cleave to this one God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, that we trust in him and love him with all our hearts, with all our souls, with all our mind, and with all our strength, that we forsake the world, crucify our old nature, and walk in a new and holy life. And if we sometimes through weakness fall into sin, we must not therefore despair of God's mercy, nor continue in sin, since baptism is a seal and undoubted testimony that we have an eternal covenant of grace with God. And although our young children do not understand these things, we may not therefore exclude them from baptism. For as they are without their knowledge partakers of the condemnation in Adam, so are they again received unto grace in Christ. As God speaketh unto Abraham, the father of all the faithful, and therefore unto us and our children, saying, I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee in their generations, for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. Genesis seventeen seven. This also the Apostle Peter testifieth with these words. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Acts 2.39 Therefore God formerly commanded them to be circumcised, which was a seal of the covenant and of the righteousness of faith. Therefore Christ also embraced them, laid his hands upon them, and blessed them. Mark 10. Since then baptism is come in the place of circumcision, therefore infants are to be baptized as heirs of the kingdom of God and of his covenant. And parents are in duty bound further to instruct their children herein when they shall arrive to years of discretion. That therefore this holy ordinance of God may be administered to his glory, to our comfort, and to the edification of this church. Let us call upon his holy name. Let us pray. Almighty and eternal God, Thou who hast according to thy severe judgment punished the unbelieving and unrepentant world with the flood, and hast according to thy great mercy saved and protected believing Noah and his family, thou who hast drowned the obstinate Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, and hast led thy people Israel through the midst of the sea upon dry ground, by which baptism was signified, we beseech thee that thou wilt be pleased of thine infinite mercy graciously to look upon these children and incorporate them by thy Holy Spirit into thy Son, Jesus Christ, that they may be buried with him into his death and be raised with him in newness of life, that they may daily follow him, joyfully bearing their cross, and cleave unto him in true faith, firm hope, and ardent love, that they may, with a comfortable sense of thy favor, leave this life, which is nothing but a continual death, that the last day may appear without terror before the judgment seat of Christ thy Son, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who with thee and the Holy Ghost, one only God, lives and reigns forever. Amen. I now ask the parents who have children to be baptized to arise and to answer the following questions. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have heard that baptism is an ordinance of God to seal unto us and to our seed his covenant. Therefore, it must be used for that end and not out of custom or superstition. 
that it may then be manifest that you are thus minded, you are to answer sincerely to the following questions. First, whether you acknowledge that although our children are conceived and born in sin, and therefore are subject to all miseries, yea, to condemnation itself, yet they are sanctified or set apart in Christ, and therefore as members of his church ought to be baptized. Secondly, whether you acknowledge the doctrine which is contained in the Old and New Testaments and in the articles of the Christian faith, and which is taught here in this Christian church to be the true and perfect doctrine of salvation. Thirdly, whether you promise and intend to see these children when come to the years of discretion, whereof you are either parent or witness, instructed and brought up in the aforesaid doctrine, or help or cause them to be instructed therein to the utmost of your power. What is your answer, Phil and Barb Bleeker? Albert and Carly Coster. Luis and Karen Loiza. Brian and Sarah Najafor. Scott and Wilma Van Dyke. Josh and Sarah Wabeck. Moses, Zhang, and Esther Hu. As you bring your children to the baptismal font, you do so through the invitation of God. God comes to us in baptism. That's what we need to understand. God is a God of grace, and as we read in the form, He comes to us to bestow on us that grace for parenting, and we pray and trust also that grace for our children to change their hearts by His Holy Spirit. And so often we focus on children and parents in baptism, but this morning I want to give a a slightly different focus and focus on the entire congregation. I want to take the time to connect baptism to the whole church family. What I'm sharing this morning is not new. It's simply a summary of a new book that's come out by Pastor Jason Halopoulos titled Covenantal Baptism. He has a chapter in there on the blessings of baptism for the congregation. First of all, the picture of baptism provides a tremendous amount of blessing for the congregation. This morning, we're witnessing a helpless infant held in the arms of the parents brought to the baptismal font, a picture of grace, a picture of our own helplessness, a picture of our own need, but also a picture of the fount of life and grace that is to be found in God alone. So a picture of grace, our helplessness over against the superabounding grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, the baptism of children reminds us that these parents do not stand alone. You're not standing here alone as you make these vows. Many of us have stood there in your place, but as part of the body, these parents stand here. They stand here as part of us, and so we stand with them this morning, pledged to help them and speak into their children's lives. As parents, my wife and I are often encouraged when people from various age groups speak into the lives of our children. Sometimes our children hear truth differently from others than they would hear it from ourselves. Sometimes it makes more of a lasting impact when they hear truth from someone that they respect within the congregation rather than from their own parents. Sad but true, isn't it, teenagers? Sometimes we respond better to the words of an elder or, or a friend rather than from our parents. And so we need each other as a body. So let's remember then to help and encourage these parents, recognizing our corporate duty. So these children don't belong just to the parents, but through baptism they are incorporated into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, into his body, and so they belong to all of us. And so we are called this morning as a congregation to raise the children of the flock through developing relationships with them across family lines, across age gaps, and across cultural differences. The bottom line is our children need Christ. Our parents need all the help they can get. And so God reminds us in baptism that it's not just the parents who are standing here by themselves. We ought to have their backs this morning. Baptism reminds us of the corporate responsibility we have so that all of our children will be brought up 
within the church and come to know Christ. Thirdly, just as these children are set apart for God at baptism, so baptism reminds the entire church to live separately from the world, to live apart from the world, and to live in holiness unto God. We'll hear more of that in the message this morning and our calling as believers to live separately from the world, the practical effects of justification. And fourthly, we're reminded of the unity that is expressed in baptism, union with Christ for believers, and again, we'll hear of that this morning. But when we have union with Christ as believers, we also have union with one another in Christ. Not just a reminder of what we have, but a reminder of what we are called to to live out, called to pursue with one another. A fractious body of believers runs contrary to what baptism proclaims to us this morning. For believers, baptism proclaims union with Christ and union with other believers, and so we ought to live that way. It also calls those this morning to repentance who are not in union with Christ. Baptism also functions evangelistically. It's a reminder to those who are outside of Christ this morning that you are living without the reality of baptism in your life. You are living apart from the blood of Christ. That's a dangerous way to live because you're living separate from the source of life for your own soul. So baptism calls you this morning to repentance, to come into a living whole life union with Jesus Christ. It calls you to consider that your life, your own baptism, if you've been baptized as a child, will witness against you apart from faith in Christ. Halopolis concludes this chapter. He says, As we baptize our covenant children in the midst of the covenant community, blessings flow to that entire community. Baptism is a community sacrament. God graciously provided this sign and seal of His covenant not only for the individual, but for the body. May we rejoice at His kindness each and every time we witness the baptism of a child in the church. And indeed, we are called to rejoice this morning in the baptism of these children, children by birth, by God's grace, also children by adoption, each one a precious gift from the Lord. We'll now have the parents come forward. Just in terms of order, the costers will come last this morning, and after the amen of baptism, we'll sing Psalter 393, verses 1 and 3. Hudson James Bleeker, I baptize you in the name of the Son, our name of the Father, the name of the Son, the name of the Holy Ghost. Ezekiel Loiza Flores, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Jolia. Jolia El Saud Najafor, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Victor Mateo Vendike, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Leo Oliver Wabek, I baptize you in the name of the Son. In the name of the Father, the name of the Son, the name of the Holy Ghost. Benaya Yuzhang Zhang, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Ali Joy Coster, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Well, just as we did the last two Lord's Days, we'll move through uh, the entire chapter of Romans chapter 6. Together with that, we'll consider Lord's Day 24. You can find that on page 53 in the back of the Psalter. 
Question 62, but why cannot our good works be the whole or part of our righteousness before God? Answer, because that the righteousness which can be approved of before the tribunal of God must be absolutely perfect and in all respects conformable to the divine law. And also that our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. Question 63. What? Do not our good works merit, which yet God will reward in this and in a future life? Answer. This reward is not of merit, but of grace. Question 64. But doth not this doctrine, referring to justification, make men careless and profane? Answer, by no means, for it is impossible that those who are implanted into Christ by a true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. Well, the first message on justification from Romans 4, we really considered those first two questions, question 62 and 63. This morning we want to focus really on question 64, a question that Paul also raises at the beginning of Romans chapter 6. This morning, I want to begin with questions from everyday life to help us understand what we're going to learn this morning from Romans 6 and also from Lord's Day 24. Young people, when you get your driver's permit, does that give you license to speed And to drive recklessly, to drive under the influence? You say, well, that's a foolish question. The answer is no, isn't it? When you get your driver's license, it gives you the freedom to drive within the parameters of the law. You obey the signs, you look out for other people's safety. To those who own a gun, does a gun permit... Give you license to shoot at every moving object? Of course not. Getting a gun permit gives you the tremendous responsibility to operate your gun safely within the confines of the law. For those who are tradespeople, does getting a building permit give you the license to to do whatever you want? To do your plumbing at crazy angles? To build the house partly off of the foundation. Or to connect live wires to ground wires. Of course not. That's foolish, isn't it? You have to build your house or complete your project according to the plans that have been submitted to the city or to the governing authority. And you complete the project when the parameters of what's been approved and according to the local guidelines. Children, does being a child in your family give you permission to do whatever you want to do? You can say, oh, I'm a son, I'm a daughter, I can do whatever I want. Because my mom and dad will they'll treat me kindly anyway. That's a silly question, isn't it? Because you are a son or a daughter... You're called to live according to the family law. As Dr. Barrett is fond of reminding us in his own family what he called Barrett law. So each family has their own laws and regulations. What all these indicate, what all these questions indicate this morning is that a particular status does not give you permission to do whatever you want. In fact, It calls you to be responsible. It calls you to live according to the law of that particular sphere in which you find yourself. The same is true regarding the doctrine of justification. Does the fact that a believer is justified, free from the condemnation of the law, now give you license to live however you want? Does it give you license to sin? That's the question that Paul gets at. What shall we say then in verse 1? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? If we're free from the condemnation of the law, if we are now under grace, if we've been received by God, if there's peace with God, 
Can we just go on sinning like we did before? That's the question we'll try to answer in our theme. Justification, license to sin? Justification, license to sin? And so we'll see that Paul gives a fourfold answer from Romans chapter 6. So let's ask that question. Does justification give a believer, one who has repented and believed in Jesus Christ, one who has been declared right by God, does that give them the right, the license to sin? Because there were those in the Roman church that were asking that question. That perhaps we're living that way. What we call antinomianism or against the law. They no longer thought the law applied to them. If they were free from the law, the law had no more application to their lives whatsoever. But Paul says, no. No, justification does not give a believer license to sin. Because a profound change has taken place. Paul anticipates the question regarding this application of justification. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, doesn't the grace of God cover our sin anyway? We can just go on living like we did before. What's the big deal? God has declared us right. We're okay. The more we sin, the more grace abounds, doesn't it? Paul responds with this powerful answer, God forbid end of story. But then he goes on to explain why. Why justification doesn't give us license to sin. He asks a follow-up question for those who might be inclined to live this way, even here this morning. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Do you hear what the Word of God is saying this morning? How shall we that are dead to sin? Paul is laying his finger on a change that has taken place. A believer who has been justified by grace is no longer alive to sin. They are dead to sin. That's what justification renders them. Repentance, faith, regeneration, justification. We can't separate all of those things out in chronological fashion even though we separate them out in logical fashion to try to understand how each of them works when someone is saved. Yet all of these things happen as a whole when, when someone is saved, when someone is justified. There is life there through regeneration. They are declared righteous before God as if they had never sinned before, received by God through Christ Jesus. They are dead to sin, Paul says person who is dead to sin because of his justification should no longer live in a lifestyle of sinning. There should be a desire for holiness. Indeed, there will be a desire for holiness for those who have been justified before God. doesn't mean a believer is now perfect. Paul is addressing here the fundamental change that has taken place. A believer who is in Christ is considered dead to sin. They've been separated from sin, divorced from sin as the principle that dominated them. Therefore, it's contrary to say that a person who is justified has license to sin. They are dead to sin, Paul says. This deadness to sin results from a believer's union with Christ. Verses 3 and 4. Paul says, Know ye not that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death. That's what baptism reminds believers of this morning. We've been baptized into Christ through justification. Therefore, we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised out from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Union with Christ, being baptized into His death, spiritually speaking, means that we are dead to sin, 
Being baptized with Christ in union with Christ means that we've been raised to newness of life. A believer is dead to sin, alive unto God. Fundamentally a new creature, united to Christ in His death and resurrection. Union with Christ assures a believer of both of these things. The fact that we are dead to sin, the fact that there's a new principle of life living within us. And so it's an oxymoron, isn't it, to say that a justified believer continues on in sin so that grace might abound. By being united to Christ in His death, you are dead to sin. It no longer dominates you. But as we heard several months ago, sin still sits in the back seat, doesn't it? It's still that backseat driver that likes to call the shots in our lives, likes to give the direction in our lives for a believer. But it's the new man who's in the believer's driver's seat, dominated by the Holy Spirit, governed by the law of God as a rule of thankfulness. And so for a believer, sin no longer dominates, sin no longer forms the basis of your desires. By being united to Christ in His life, you're now alive unto God, and new desires form, shaped by the life of Christ and the power of His resurrection. The same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the, be- from the dead, as, as Paul says in Romans 1, 4, now lives and reigns within the life and heart and soul and mind of a believer, enabling you, if you have believed into Christ, to live in newness of life. Sin is now an intruder. It comes where it does not belong. And so a justified believer has no business sinning so that grace might abound. Furthermore, Paul says there is freedom from sin. That's part of that change that has taken place. Death to sin, union with Christ, that ensures newness of life and then freedom from sin, as Paul outlines in verses 5 through 7. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Freedom from sin. Our old man is crucified with Christ. When a believer looks at the cross, what do you see? You see Christ there. By virtue of your union with Christ, it's as if you hung there. Even as Christ hung in your place. And what does that guarantee for you? The shackles of sin are broken. The chains are lying on the ground. Believer does not willingly go back to them and put them back on so that he might receive more grace. No, that grace has come through justification. That grace continues to sustain a believer in the battle against sin. The very fact that you're united to Christ and His death and resurrection means that there's a a new pulse in a believer. A new pulse of life. Guarantees a new impulse of will in a believer. So not we no longer will to sin, but we will to do the good. Freedom from sin. Freedom to live according to the law of God, sustained by His grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Yes, we still sin as a believer. That's clear from Romans 7. But that sin is there against a believer's will. It runs contrary to what God has implanted. And so we say with Paul this morning, no. If I believed into Christ this morning, I am justified. And therefore, therefore I am dead to sin. 
I have the pulse of new life by the gracious work of the Holy Spirit. And I have freedom from sin that no longer dominates me. Therefore, I will not sin so that grace might abound. But then Paul gives the second part of his answer. Does justification give license to sin? No. Because of a powerful counting. A powerful counting. Verse 11, Paul says, Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead. That word reckon there means to count yourself as something. For a believer to look at himself and say, this is who I am and this is not who I am. It addresses what a believer believes about himself and his justification. Paul writes in the preceding verses, 8 through 10, Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over Him. For that in, in that He died, He died unto sin once, but in that He liveth, He liveth unto God. These words address how a believer views himself in terms of the life that you've received from Christ. Paul sets out a pattern here to help us understand the impact of the death and resurrection of Christ in relation not only to our right standing with God, but also in relation to the power of sin in a believer's life. He says, now if we'll be dead with Christ, we believe. We believe this. We trust that this is the truth, that as a result of our justification, the old nature is fundamentally dead even though he's in the, in the back seat. We believe. We trust that as a result of justification, we will also live with Christ. Just as death no longer has dominion over Christ, so sin no longer has dominion over a believer. In fact, the death of Christ is a one-of-a-kind death over sin. It speaks to the power and the effectiveness of the death of Christ. He does not have to die again in order to overcome and to destroy sin. And so the believer, when you are counted in Christ, you are fundamentally dead to sin. And if we go back to sin and begin to live a lifestyle of sin, and we say, well, God's grace is going to cover my sin anyway, what are we doing? We're trampling underfoot the blood of Christ. And we're proclaiming that the death of Christ has been ineffective over our sin. That the death of Christ has not really accomplished the death of, of my old man when we go back and put on the chains. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Underlining this point, he says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So we believe, we trust that when we are justified, we are dead to sin. Do you believe that about yourself this morning in relation to Christ? and sin, that Christ's death has rendered you dead to sin once and for all, that this is how God views you in Christ. This is the foundation that we need in order to, to battle against sin effectively. If we're not viewing ourselves this way, we'll always be on the weaker foot. We'll always give way to sin. Is this how we believe? Is this what we think? Is this what fills our mind? Is this the foundation for our life of living in holiness to God, of putting sin to death? Yes, there's indwelling sin, but the dominion and power of sin have been broken. You're dominated by the life of Christ in His resurrection. Beloved, these truths are vital to believe, to, to grasp, in order to live a balanced and biblical Christian life.
for constantly saying, I'm such a sinner. I'm such a sinner. I'm such a sinner. And we're never parked here. We're never planting our feet firmly on the truth of what justification grants to a believer. Then we'll always be slipping and sliding around in the Christian life. But here's the foundation. This is what we're called to believe. This is what we're called to preach to ourselves practically. Paul says in verse 11, Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ. Christ's death is the pattern. He's put to death sin. But now, Paul says, you as a believer are to reckon, are to count yourself dead to sin. Just as Christ died on the cross, remember, Paul says, likewise, just as Christ died on the cross and you too were crucified with Him in union with Him, so now you're called to count yourself dead to sin. This is where the rubber hits the road. When temptation comes, what do you say to yourself? I'm such a sinner. I'm such a sinner. That's true. You are a justified sinner. But Paul says, reckon yourselves, count yourself dead to sin. When temptation comes, what do you tell yourself? I'm such a sinner that was pleasurable before, I'm going to try it again. No. I am dead to sin. The battle against temptation and sin begins there. Begins on this foundation. Sin no longer has dominion over me. In fact, you're to count yourself as alive unto God. When that same temptation comes, you're not only to preach that you are dead to sin, but also alive to God. There's not only death to sin, there's, there's life. There's grace. This is the working of grace, you see. To stifle and to kill sin the moment it presents itself in temptation. Grace doesn't tell us to abound in sin so that grace will abound more. No. Grace tells us, count yourself dead to sin. That may seem clinical. It may seem cold at first. But it's the reality that we need to preach to ourselves if you are a believer this morning. To count yourself dead to sin and alive to God. It speaks to identity, does it not? Our world loves to talk about identity. I identify as, and you can fill in the blanks, whatever, I, whatever you want to identify as. But what Scripture is pointing out to us this morning is that there are really only two identities that matter. Listen carefully here this morning. Because this is where the line of separation comes. There are two identities. This morning, you are either alive to sin and dead to God. You are alive to sin and dead to God. Or you are dead to sin and alive unto God. The person who is alive unto sin and dead unto God is is going to continue sinning. The person who is dead unto sin and alive unto God is going to count himself as such. There's no nebulous middle road approach to identity this morning. It's one or the other. And if it's one or the other, then a plain command follows from the pen of the Apostle Paul. As he answers this question, does justification give license to sin? And he says no, because there's a plain command that follows all of this truth. The command is twofold. In the first place, this command calls a believer to reject the reign of sin. 
Paul writes in verses 12 and 13, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. If your identity is in union with Christ, dead to sin and alive unto God, then you're not to let sin reign in your mortal body. Paul states it negatively first. Let not sin therefore reign. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. Does justification give a believer license to sin? No. In fact, we're commanded to do the opposite. Let not sin therefore reign. Neither yield ye your members. Those who are declared as righteous before God as if they had never sinned must now do something in regards to the sin that they find within, the indwelling sin. To live in the reality that the reign and dominion of sin have been broken. To grow into that identity. To wage war on indwelling sin. To live in such a way that it daily conforms to this new reality in your life. There are ups and downs in this reality as Paul paints vividly for us in the next chapter in Romans 7. But this is what a believer is called to do in light of justification. Not sin so that grace might abound, but not to yield your members as instruments unto unrighteousness. Not to give in to sin, not to live loosely as if sin will be covered by grace anyway. believer does not have license to sin. But now a believer has license to kill sin. It's like the deer hunter. He gets a tag or several tags to go and hunt some deer every season. The license to kill a deer Justification gives license not to sin, but to kill sin. You're being handed this morning, as it were, believer, your tag through justification. It's open season on sin this morning. It's not easy work, but we're reminded that there is grace for this work. We're called to dethrone sin. There's power for this work in the death and the life of Christ because you're united to Christ. When the going gets tough, remember that this union with Christ controls the entire life of the Christian. It ensures our death to sin. It helps us count ourselves dead to sin. It helps us actually to become dead to sin. To grow into that identity within the realm of our experience. You're not to yield your members as instruments to unrighteousness. Paul points out that sin does not happen merely outside of us. Sin's presence is housed within a believer. It proceeds from the heart, enlists the body to carry out its evil passions and desires. The body itself is not sinful. It's created by God in His image. But sin exerts this pressure. The body becomes the instrument of carrying out the desires of the old man. And so Paul says that sin, under sin's pressure, the body is yielded to sin and carries out its dictates. But for a justified believer, that's no longer what ought to be the case. Do not yield your members of the body to indwelling sin as before. You see, he's working off of that change that's happened. This is what you did before, but now you do this. The command is stated positively. Yield yourselves unto God, in verse 13, as those that are alive from the dead, your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Those members, the parts of the body that before had been yielded to sin, used for unrighteousness, are now to be yielded to God to do what is good, to live consistent with the new identity in Christ. That which is dominant now comes to the foreground for a believer. For the unbeliever this morning here. Sin is still the dominant force in your life. You will only yield yourself to sin as long as you are apart from Christ. It's 
So I call you to repentance this morning. To believe in Christ. To turn from your sin. To Christ. Before the believer, God is now the dominant force in your life. His righteousness, His holiness is the dominant, ought to be the dominant desire. You begin to yield yourself to the reign of righteousness. The reign of grace. Paul says in verse 14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. Sin's dominion is broken. The believer is now dominated by grace. Grace does not give license to sin. But it gives freedom to begin living unto God. The law is no longer operative in the sense of making its demands and and hanging over a believer with its curse. That's gone. That's gone in justification. But now the believer is free and under the grace of God begin living unto God under the reign of grace. Gives a believer the power to fight against sin, to grow into the reality of his new identity. Does justification give license to sin? No. We'll continue through this morning just to our last thought and, and finish it without singing. And Paul says no, because there's a pointed contrast. Working off that change, working off that identity, he's contrasting several things in the last verses. A pointed contrast that puts the sword through the idea that justification could make a believer lax towards sin and causes them to live with an antinomian spirit, with an anti-law spirit. There's first of all contrasted obedience. Verses 15 and 16, Paul says, What then? Shall we sin? Because we're not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Don't you know that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? There might be some even this morning who think, who hear the truth that we are no longer under the law as believers and who think that they can just throw off the law entirely as if it doesn't matter anymore. We can throw it off as a rule of thankfulness, as a rule of righteousness unto God. But Paul says that there are only two fundamental identities this morning that prove to whom you are obedient. You're either obedient and servile to the dictates of sin unto death, or you are obedient to the righteousness of the law and dependence on Christ. Again, living out of that union with Christ. You can't have it both ways. You can't serve and obey two masters. That's what Paul is saying. Echoing the words of the Lord Jesus. These words are fruitful for self-examination this morning. If you're obeying the dictates of sin, then you need to ask yourself, have I severely backslidden? Have I put back on the chains that bound me before and have I turned my back on God and His grace proclaiming that I will sin more so that grace might abound? How foolish. Do I need to flee for cleansing then in the blood of Christ and and seek power to put sin to death? Yes. If you are backslidden, that's where you need to go and leave off the chains and reckon yourself, count yourself dead to sin. Do you need the accountability and counsel of another person, another saint in the body to help you and to Put sin to death. Yes, if you know your weakness, your proclivity to go back to the chains, enlist help, lean on grace. 
Or maybe you need to ask yourself this question if you're living as obedient and servile to sin. Has my profession been merely the lip service of obedience to God, but in reality, I don't have a new identity at all? Have I never come to Christ before? And have I just embraced sin as a, as a way of life and thrown everything to the wind? My friend, I pray that baptism this morning and the sermon this morning would convict you of your sin and bring you back to Christ. To the feet of Christ where there is forgiveness for sin. That he may be feared. Or there's this question. Am I living out of the righteousness of Christ, justified? Am I willing and ready to live unto God? Is His righteousness my delight? Are His statutes and judgments and law my delight? Can you say with the psalmist, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of sin? I would rather be a servant to God rather than live in servile bondage to sin again. Lord, keep me, preserve me. Help me daily to yield my members to you rather than to indwelling sin that pressures me to give in. Are Paul's words in verse 17 true for you this morning? But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart the form of doctrine which was delivered you. You see, this gets to the heart of the matter. Who are you obeying? Sin or God? That's the question. Contrasting obedience. Contrasting goals. Verses 18 and 19. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. Paul's contrasting the goals of, of that obedience that he contrasted earlier. The goal of living according to the flesh was uncleanness and iniquity, but now the goal is righteousness unto holiness. And so a believer does not have justification to sin. He does not have license to sin. Because the first goal is inconsistent. If you're yielding yourself, consistently yielding yourself to sin, inconsistent with a life of grace. The latter goal is consistent. Righteousness unto holiness, the bullseye of the Christian life, conformity to Christ. We strive for holiness, offering ourselves as a whole-bodied sacrifice, as Paul says in Romans 12, 1 through 2. And again, the question comes, what goals are you setting for your life? If you're a believer, is it the goal and the standard of holiness? Of pursuing righteousness and conformity to Christ. In contrast to the goal that you had set before. Of sin and iniquity. For the unbeliever. These truths remind you that you're still living with the goal of sin in view. You are missing the mark for which God created you. That alone should move you to repentance this morning. And finally, there's contrasting fruit. A lifestyle of sin bears a particular type of fruit. A lifestyle of holiness and of union with Christ bears a particular type of fruit. These are contrasted in the last verses, verses 21 through 23. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Two trees. Two different kinds of fruits. The orchard of life has two trees. 
How can he differentiate? A tree that pictures the life of sin is a deadly tree. Its fruit is poisonous. It looks good. The devil even comes and he shines up that fruit. He makes it sparkle. He makes it gleam. And he says, has God not said? You eat the fruit. It's death. But there's another tree. The tree of life. The tree of life. That also has fruit on it. The fruit of the work of Christ. The fruit of eternal life. For a believer, that ought to gleam much brighter than the devil's tree. The fruit of sin is death. The fruit of holiness in Christ is eternal life. If we insist on saying that justification gives a believer license to sin, we're saying this morning that you can eat all you want from that tree of death and it's not going to harm you. Let's bring ourselves back to the word. The wages of sin is death. Be clear this morning. What sin pays is only death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's the fruit of grace. So what does justification do? It doesn't give license to sin, but it makes a believer sensitive to sin in their lives. It ought to make you dependent on the grace of God. It ought to make you active in the pursuit of holiness for the glory of Christ. It gives you license to live within the freedom of the law. Our relationship to Christ transforms our relationship to the law. The law now no longer makes demands that we cannot keep. But the law becomes our delight, as Paul points out in Romans 7. I delight in the law, in the inward man. Justification gives you the freedom to grow into your identity, to live out of your union with Christ, to be conformed to Christ. So now I challenge you in the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Having learned everything we learned this morning in the fourfold answer of Paul to this question, shall we sin so that grace might abound? Does justification give license to sin for a believer? I challenge you this morning to go out and sin boldly now, if you dare. To those who are unbelievers this morning, you have no business sinning either. You are called to repentance this morning to bow before God. as you stand apart from His grace, as you face certain death, remember this. The tree of life has been set before you this morning. The tree of life that calls you to come and to eat and to live. So I urge you to come to Christ and live. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we give Thee thanks for Thy Word, the power of Thy Word and how it challenges us at every turn, how it calls us to live in holiness, how it calls us to live in repentance, how it calls us to dependence on grace rather than using grace as an excuse to sin. Lord, help us to take this message this morning to put it into practice to count ourselves dead indeed 
and to sin. Lord, please use this message to bring unbelievers to thyself. Lest they sleep the sleep of death and reap the bitter fruit of the payment of sin. Lord, hear us now. Bless word and sacrament this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.